And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. I am Jonah. My reluctant repentance makes God want to vomit. I am Jonah. Now that I am on dry land, I still have a choice to obey. I am Jonah. I am grateful my past mistakes don't prevent God from using me for his purposes. I am Jonah. The hardest part of serving God is getting started. I am Jonah. I must remember that God chooses to put limits on his patience. I am Jonah. When it comes to those who disagree with me, I find it easier to pronounce judgment rather than declare mercy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. If you're a guest of ours, glad that you've joined us for week number four of our study through the book of Jonah. My name is Craig, and I'm the lead pastor here and one of the uh, teaching pastors. And it's great to continue our series through the book of Jonah, where we've reached the end of Jonah chapter two. Today, we move into the first part of Jonah chapter three. If you haven't got a copy of the scriptures, but you would like to follow along with us, all you need to do is raise your hands in the air and our ushers will give you a copy of the scriptures. And when you've received the scriptures, you can turn to page 926. Again, if you need a copy of the scriptures, just raise uh, your hands in the air. Now, We've reached the point where Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and uh, he's about to be, um, what, brought out. Let me put it that way, vomited out. And the question that we're going to answer today really is, is he ready? Is he ready to to do that? And, And what does God do with our failure? When we failed, are we ready to obey? heard a story about a lady who'd had her eye on a a guy at work for a significant period of time, and uh, she couldn't believe it, but one day he came to her and said, would you like to grab some dinner sometime? And she was thrilled and said, yeah, that would be awesome, I'd love to. So they set a day and uh, a time, and uh, he said he'd pick her up, and so she spent a couple of hours beforehand getting ready for the date, and, and the time came, and the guy was late, 30 minutes, she was still waiting. 45 minutes, she was still waiting. An hour went by, she was still waiting, still no date. An hour and a quarter went by, still no date, and she thought, he stood me up. Rather despondent, she went up to the bathroom, took off all the makeup, got ready for bed, went into the freezer, pulled out a tub of ice cream, brought the popcorn, and sat on there, watched a soppy film, and moped. After about two hours, the door went. Yeah, the doorbell rang, and uh, he, she goes to the door, opened the door, and there was her date. He looked and was stunned. She didn't look like that at work. And then he said this, 
I turn up two hours late and you're still not ready? (laughs) This is three days later. Three days and three nights, Jonah's been in the belly of a fish. And now the question is, is he ready? Let's look at the text, shall we? Jonah chapter 2, beginning to read there from verse 10, the final verse. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on to dry land. Uh, Stop there a moment. The Lord commanded the fish. I'm struck by this phrase, the Lord commanded, because this is the fourth time in the text that God speaks or acts. And there's some significance to this. Firstly, way back in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God spoke to his prophet. Then a few verses later, we read, the Lord sent. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. The Lord spoke to the wind, and the wind came. Then we read, verse 17, now the Lord provided a fish. Last week I shared with you that word provided is the word prepared. I asked that question, how do you like your fish prepared? God prepares his fish obedient. That's the idea here. That's the third time. The fourth time that God speaks is right here. And the Lord commanded Notice the implication here then. The implication in the text is that we have obedient nature, we have obedient creatures, and we have a disobedient prophet. Notice the irony here. The ones who have been given the utmost responsibility, the most authority in God's created order are the ones who are the most reluctant to act obediently. When God speaks to nature, it obeys. When God speaks to creatures, they obey. But when God speaks to his people, the scriptures say to those that much has been given, much is demanded. And so all through this text, we were being taught something about how difficult it is for God's people to obey. The text says that God spoke and the fish, sick and tired of all of Jonah's moaning in his gut, vomits Jonah onto dry land. Just before the series began, Brad and I received an an email from a group of people that were actually studying through Jonah and reached this part of the text, and they asked themselves the question, where? Where was Jonah thrown up? Now, there are a number of theories about this, and the bottom line is no one really knows where. A number of people actually believe, just through kind of assumption, that Jonah was actually thrown up, really, on the banks of Nineveh through the Euphrates. But for that to happen, the fish, remember, there's no Suez Canal in this part of the world at that point in time. The fish would have had to swim out of the Mediterranean, swim all the way down the coast of Africa, around the Cape, and then all the way back up. And how long for this? Three days and three nights. Yeah, I don't think that that would have been a turbo fish, but we don't know, do we? 
So that's unlikely. So the question is, where? Some people think it may well have been back in Joppa, but for a number of reasons, I actually believe that it would have been here on the top part of the coast near Phoenicia. Now, if you remember, in week number two, Brad put up the picture of the, the sailing routes to Tarshish. Remember, Tarshish was that place where God's glory was not known. Jonah was running to a place where God, did not, where God was not known. He thought he could go there and get away from God. And what the, fish, uh, the fishermen would have done is they would have hugged that coastline and gone around. But a storm came up. And they tried to get back to land. That tells you that they're hugging that coastline. So the implication of the text here is that when Jonah is thrown overboard, they're pretty close to the coastline. And I actually think that it would have been Phoenicia that he would have been vomited onto dry land at. It would have been right here. Now we've put a little route up there. Of course, it wouldn't take three days and three nights to get there. So God's having a bit of fun at Jonah's expense. The symbolism for this we'll pick up with the sign of Jonah later on, but I actually think it would have been here in Phoenicia. A number of people come to this part of the text too and they say, Craig, do you, do you really believe this? I'm sure all of you have asked yourself that question as well. Is this really true? I said right from the beginning of the series that the background to this story in 2 Kings 14 makes it clear that the Hebrews believed this to be a true story. Jesus' reference to Jonah, three days and three nights, and the sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12 leads us to believe that Jesus believed that this was a true story. But can a man really live inside the belly of a fish? Throughout history, there have been a number of attempts to prove this part of the story to be true. The best example of this is a story a couple of hundred years ago that took place off the coast of the Falkland Islands, which is an island that Britain still owns after a war with Argentina. Sorry, we've got a couple of Argentinian friends in here. I know I've met you, you guys are great, sorry, but we did win that war. Um, just off the coast there, a couple of hundred years ago, there was a story about a fishing vessel where the captain, and I think it's about six crew, that they went out to sea, and the story goes that in rough seas, this, one of the sailors fell overboard, and he was presumed dead. A couple of days later, they caught a big fish. I can figure the rest of the story. They cut open the fish. There's the man inside the belly of the whale. His skin is all white because of the gastric acids of the fish, and he was able to be revived. And so the story goes, if it's possible in the book of Jonah, we know that that's true because it happened here. The only problem with that story is that the wife of the captain of that ship is on record as saying, well, if that story happened, my husband never told me. Surely, she said, if it were true, he would have told me, wouldn't he? That's probably the best example of a story that is around there in circulation attempting to prove that Jonah was in the belly of the fish and see it can happen. The reality is, I believe, I don't believe that there is an adequate example of this in history to point to. So what do we do with that? 
Well, I think when we don't know something to be true, we have to go and ask ourselves, what is the greatest miracle of all time? Is it not that when Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, tomb there was a Roman security unit outside, which would have been 16 Roman soldiers on guard. Isn't the greatest miracle of all that death does not hold us captive anymore? There is life after death. Isn't that the greatest miracle of all? And if our God can actually raise people from the dead, then he can certainly preserve someone in the belly of a fish. And that really is my take on it. I read things like this, and there are times when I ask questions of it, and I go, really? But then in those moments where my logical mind, my analytical mind kicks in, what I need to do is realize, if I start to pick and choose which part of the Bible I believe and which part of the Bible I don't, very quickly I will end up like a liberal who believes what he wants to believe, often because it's convenient and comfortable. So you may be someone here today with an analytical mind listening to this part of the story thinking, God, is this really true? Well, my stance on that is it's in the Bible and if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can certainly preserve a man in the belly of a fish. But one thing is certainly true. The Hebrews, the ancients, believed this to be true. That God speaks. And when God speaks, nature listens. When God speaks, Creatures, listen. But the lesson of history is when God speaks, those who have been given so much authority, you and me, are the ones who frequently disobey. We know from last week that when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, there are two things that are going on. Firstly, Jonah is turning his face back towards God. That's the relationship. To run away is to turn your face away. And there in the first part of that prayer, Jonah says, I'm turning my face back towards you, towards Jerusalem. God, I'm reconnecting in my relationship with you. I know you're there. I know I can't run away from you. But the second part of that prayer and the second issue had to do with whether Jonah was going to be obedient and do what God said. Now, remember the issue here. The issue is that Jonah was struggling. God had disappointed him. God had disappointed him because Jonah was a faithful prophet living in an unfaithful land. He was competent to do his ministry. He was called to do his ministry. And yet, the righteous were struggling and suffering while a sinner king was receiving blessing after blessing after blessing. Just like we heard Jordan and Dwight singing that song. When things don't turn out in life the way that we think they should. All too often we can turn our face away from God and we wrestle with this. And so when Jonah is vomited onto dry land, he's not dealt with that issue. Remember in the the prayer there he says the judgment falls upon Those idol worshippers, he says, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's the issue here. And so when the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land, the question is, Jonah, are you ready now? This is the background to this verse, verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came the fifth time God speaks. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I love that phrase. Notice, if we take that phrase a second time out of the verse, we wouldn't know that God came the first time, would we? What is this telling us? It's telling us this, that past mistakes don't prevent God from using us for his purposes. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Not the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Jonah, you're really testing my patience. You're a prophet, and prophets speak what God tells them to speak. So Jonah, do it this time, won't you? There's none of that. Simplicity. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Take second time out of it, and you wouldn't even know there was a first time. (laughs) That's how simple it is for God. Unfortunately, it's not that simple for us, is it? All too often, in our minds, our failure in the past means that we are prevented from being used by God in the present. And yet, over and over again, God's word comes to us so simply and says, do you want to do this? See, the lesson in chapter 2 is really an application of 1 John, where in 1 John we realize and we read a passage of the scriptures, the one we're struggling with issues, we're struggling with our relationship with God, and there's something hindering our relationship with God. The scriptures say when we, when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in that moment, it, he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so he comes to us in all simplicity as if it never happened. But unfortunately for us, it's rarely that way. For many of us, I I think the reality is more like this. We're afraid of failing. Sometimes to the point of failing to try. Failure is temporary in God's eyes, but it's actually giving up that makes failure permanent. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Jonah, yeah, you messed up, but that failure is temporary. It is quitting right now that makes this permanent. Are you ready? One of the hardest things, I think, about dealing with failure and responding to it is starting the second time. So hard to do. How many of you here taught your children to ride a bike? Any of you do that? I've got uh, four children, taught them all to ride a bike, and actually Roland is with us now, and uh, taught Roland to ride a bike as well. Alicia, my daughter, she's 21 now, I remember teaching her to ride a bike on vacation in France. We had a little French uh, car, we were living in London at the time, it was called a Citroen AX, okay, which is, any of you know the Fiat 5cc car, the little bubble thing? It was about that big, okay? It was a diesel engine. We got about 80 miles a gallon out of the thing. We run it for like 250,000 miles. It was awesome. The price of gas in Europe is four times what it is over here. So the cars tend to be smaller, more economical. So I said to Vibgar, okay, we're going to go on vacation with some friends in France along the kind of the coastline there. So we got a little cottage, and I said to Vibgar, I'm going to take the bike with us, and I'm going to teach Alicia to ride a bike. And Vibgar's like, 
seen the size of the car? And I said, Han, we can get it in. So I took the wheels off and the handlebars off, got the bike in the car, and we get to France, and uh, I started to teach Alicia to ride a bike. But I was, as we got there, I kind of looked, and the little cottage was here, and there was a little hill that kind of went outside and around the corner. I'm like, ooh, if I take her out there straight away, she may fall off and never get back on, because it's really difficult to start after you've fallen off. So I thought, okay, I've got to take the fear of falling away from her. Got to make it kind of fun. So what we did is I actually taught her to ride a bike on, on the back yard of this house that we were staying in. The grass was about this long, and she fell off more times than she could actually move, you know, twice with a pedal. But the reality of that is as soon as I took her outside of the cottage and, and went with it, she thought falling was fun. How weird is that? And actually, she didn't fall at all. She just rode down the hill, and she, she did it that way. She'd fallen enough in the grass, and she worked out falling didn't hurt. And she did that. Now, with my second child, Alec, my oldest son, I taught him to ride a bike in Hamburg in Germany. No grass. Either I forgot amnesia, or I, yeah, or I thought he learns lessons the hard way. <laughs> yeah, it seems funny that way, but um, before I taught him to ride a bike, we actually taught him to dive in a pool. It's a funny story. We took Alec to a, an outdoor swimming pool in, uh, in Hamburg, and uh, he said, can I go on the diving board? Well, he could swim, so we're like, yeah, sure. He must have been really, really young, four or five. So this, this pool had a couple of diving boards. The first one was about, you know, a meter high, about three feet. And the next one was about, I don't know, five meters high. So when he says, can I go off the diving board, I'm standing there, and I think, sure, he's going to go off the low one, right? So I turn around, talk to Vipka like this, and then I hear some people, see some people pointing the finger like this. I turn around and there's Alec on the five meter board. And I'm, before I could even say, Alec, stop, he kind of runs off the end of the board and he goes belly flop straight into the thing. That's exactly what everybody around the pool did too. And he kind of comes up out of the water and he's spluttering, crying as he's doing a doggy paddle back to the side and he's crying his eyes out. And his mother, sitting on the front row right here, looks at him in a German encouraging way and said, Alec, get back up there and do it again. <laughs> and even like at the water, she said, you'll never dive if you don't get back up there and do it again. So he goes straight to the thing, he goes up to the thing and he dives and he goes straight down like this. The whole pool cheered for him because he did it the second time. But the reality of that story is starting the second time after you failed the first time is the hardest thing to do. It was exactly the same with the bike with him. Alec is the type of person that would just do something, run full headlong into this thing, give it everything. He did that with a bike and he went down so hard. Again, grazed cuts and this kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I forgot to put the elbow pads on him. Yeah, no, bad dad. Um, but again, same thing, tears. The hardest thing for him to do was to get back on and do it the second time. I actually believe that's true for you and I, spiritually speaking. In many ways, after we've suffered any kind of failure, Especially if you're a guy here. One of the hardest things to do is to do it again when you've just made a mistake, when you've messed up. But what we discover in this story is God is the God of second chances. It's never too late to start again. It's never too late to do the right thing. It doesn't matter what you've messed up with, it's never too late to start again. It's never too late 
for you to leave here saying, God, I will do it, and I will do it right this time. Because you know what we discover in this story? We discover in this story that our God is a God who can take failure and actually turn it into victory. Our God is a God who can take our failure, make it a lesson in character for us, and actually still do what he wants to do. And we see that in the story of Jonah. Now what I want to do here is I quickly want to do some background and then I'm going to turn you back to chapter one. And I want you to realize as we go through this that our God is a God who takes our failure and turns it into victory. Now in chapter one, we see a number of uh, conversations going on, but especially in this conversation that is going on between Jonah and the sailors, we see that God is able to take our disobedience and our failure and work it out in such a way that the people who experience our failure will actually be transformed. In order to do this, what I need you to note first is the interplay that it, there is in chapter one with the names of God. Essentially speaking, there are two names for God used in chapter one. The first one is Elohim. That is a generic term that's used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament that we would get the word God from. So the capital G, we're talking about the God of the scriptures, or gods, idols, etc. So we see this in chapter one, verse five, all the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God, Elohim. Okay, in verse eight, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, your Elohim. So we see this idea of Elohim, God, but then something happens. Something happens that transforms these sailors' idea in the many gods to doing something with regard to the one true God. So the second word for God in here is Yahweh, often translated over here YHVH, another way of doing that, YHWH. Some people say Jehovah, it's more likely to be Yahweh than Jehovah. This is the proper name of the God of Israel. This is the covenant name. This is the I am. This is the covenant name. And so we see in chapter one and verse eight, they knew that he was running away from the Lord, Yahweh because he'd already told them. He's not running away from Elohim, one of many gods. He's running away from Yahweh, the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, the one true God, because he told them that. We read in the next verse, verse nine, he answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. We can't run away from him. Now I want you to see what, what happens here. I want you to look with me in your Bibles in chapter one. I want you to see what, what happens here to Jonah's failure. Then they cried out to the Lord. Who are they crying out to, Elohim? The tribal God of the Israelites? No, they're changing this. It's not the tribal God. This is now Jehovah God, Yahweh. Please, Lord. Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And the raging sea grew calm. I love this. A lot of the Hebrew here said the sea raged against them. It's far more personal than the English puts it out. It's as if God is doing this targeting them. 
God is getting their attention. And now hear this. And this, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, which is Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord Yahweh and made vows to him. Do you understand what's going on here? Sacrifice and making vows was the public expression of a private conviction. Let me put it more simply for you. When a person realizes what God has done in Jesus Christ, they personally turn their face back towards God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is basically making an about turn. When they do that, something personal, something private has happened. And then we talk about baptism. Baptism is that public expression of that private faith. That's the significance of baptism. I'm making what has happened in my heart public for the world to see. Have you done that? Because in the Old Testament times, that's what is happening here. They sacrificed and made a vow. Why? Because this idea that they had in many lords and many gods is now being replaced by the God that they have come to know. And they symbolize that in this ancient mindset by sacrificing and making a vow, not to Elohim, but to Yahweh himself. This interpretation is supported by the fact that in chapter one, we have the three ideas in the Hebrew scriptures for fear being present in this one chapter. This is significant. Have a look at the text with me. You can see here in verse five. Verse five of chapter one. All the sailors were afraid. That word there is yare. They were afraid of dying. And so they went to their own gods. That is from the word yara, Y-A-R-A, which means to be afraid. They were afraid. Now have a look at verse nine. In verse nine, Jonah says, he answered them, I am a Hebrew and I worship. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. That word worship there is actually the word yare, Y-A-R-E. It means fear. To worship God is to fear him. Not in an afraid of dying kind of way, but in a healthy reverence that recognizes his power, his might, his majesty, and his holiness. There's already two types of fear going on here. One of them is the fear of dying, and true worship, according to a person who knows the God of the Scriptures, is actually a fear of the Lord. What did the psalmist say? Psalm 111 verse 10, the, beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's also the beginning of worship. Now look at the next part, verse 10. Verse 10, this terrified them. That's what it is in the Hebrew, which is one word for fear, which is the second word for fear, another word for fear, with godal, great. Fear, awesome, fear, great. They were terrified. Why were they terrified? Read the verse. Because, of, because God that they didn't know was doing something. Now drop down to the last part here, which is greatly feared the Lord. Exactly the same. But this time, their fear of the unknown, the unknown God is replaced by a healthy fear of the God that they know. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now how is this possible? You just did a lesson in Hebrew, but how is this possible? 
Because God was at work transforming Jonah's failure and using it as a vehicle for good. Nobody can be under any illusion that Jonah messed up. God said, go, Jonah ran. God said, arise, Jonah went down and down and down and down. And all too often when God says do this and we think do this, the hardest part of starting again is actually coming to believe that God can transform our failure. But here in Jonah chapter one, we see that God is transforming Jonah's failure and using it for victory, using it to bring idol worshipers back to faith. You see, God transforms failure into victory. Look at this. One of the reasons I believe the sailors believe Jonah is that he comes to them in weakness. What do the scriptures say? The power of God is made perfect in weakness. It is in his weakness that Yahweh's power is seen and the vow is made. Jonah's failure hasn't stopped God's plans. It actually resulted in salvation reaching more idol worshipers. The problem is Jonah doesn't know it. And the problem for many of us is we don't believe it. We don't believe that our failure can be used as a vehicle for victory. I believe one of the keys to starting again after failure is believing this truth. God can still use my failure to bring someone else to victory. He did it for Jonah in chapter one, and friends, he can do it for you too. Don't ever forget that God can transform your failure and allow others to see God's goodness and glory through it. A good friend of mine in Samory by the name of uh, Steve was preaching on the streets in Leicester Square uh, Friday night. It's one of the first times that he was doing this. We would go down from seminary onto Leicester Square in London and we would just preach on the streets and, and Steve was there and he had a ladder and he was trying to talk about how do we get to God and the point of the talk was, we don't get to God, Steve said, by doing good things. We don't get to God by uh, going to church. We don't get to God. And he was getting so excited. And he got so excited that he actually said, and you don't get to God by, coming, by looking at Jesus. That's actually what he wanted to say. He meant to say, you come to God by turning to Jesus. But he was so excited and so nervous, he messed the whole thing up. And to seminary students who delighted in ripping him to shreds afterwards too. Steve fumbled his way through the rest of the message, thinking, how on earth could God do this? What have I done? That's heresy. A week went by. And Steve wrestled with this for an entire week. The next weekend, he was in a church. It was a Sunday service. And somebody came up to him and said, you're the guy from the street in Leicester Square last week, aren't you? And it's not difficult to miss Steve. He's about six foot six. Actually, he would fit into the crowd pretty well up here, wouldn't he? But he was like six foot six. And Steve was like, oh, Lord. He said, yeah, that's me. And it was a couple, young couple. And the guy looked at Steve and said, you know, as I stood on the square last week in Leicester Square, and listen to what you're saying. God really spoke to me and reminded me that I need to turn to Jesus. And that night with my girlfriend, that's what I did. I listened to that and think, how is that possible? He messed it up. And yet God used Steve's 
failure in such a way that his glory came in someone's life. Church, what's true for Jonah, what's true for Steve, is true for you. But the hardest thing in life to do is to start again after you've messed up. Be the type of people that start again. Be the type of people that recognize God can take failure and use it as a vehicle for his good. Quickly here, verses two and three, look at this. Go to the Lord, I go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. What strikes me with this is go to the great city of Nineveh. I've suggested to you that Jonah was on the banks of, the, of Phoenicia there, and the distance from Phoenicia to Nineveh was 430 miles. Walking 20 miles a day, it would have taken Jonah about 22 days to get there. My friend Steve struggled with his failure for one week. Every step he took, he carried his failure with him. Jonah wrestled with his for 20, at least 22 days. Every step he took, remembering his failure, remembering his issue. How can I say that? Because through the rest of this book, you're going to discover that the issue still isn't dealt with. I wonder how long you've been carrying your failure. I wonder how long you've been living with the wrong kind of fear, the fear of stepping out, the fear of being obedient. Let me encourage you today. Recognize this truth, the importance of obedience. And as soon as you do that, you realize this. This book of Jonah, this portion of the scriptures, teaches us that God uses people to get ministry done, but he also uses ministry to get people done. God wants to use you to bring hope and life to other people. God uses people to bring life to others, but guess what? God uses life to bring you to him. That basically means that whether it's for 22 days, like Jonah, whether it's seven days, like my friend Steve, or however long it is that you tend to hold on to things, just realize that God is using this experience to refine you, to make you perfect, to get you done, ready and fit for life with him in heaven. God uses all failure for the child of God that turns their face back to him as a vehicle for good. Church, let me encourage you this week. Do exactly the same thing. Do exactly the same thing. Don't ever allow failure to defeat you. Rise above it, get back up, and obey, because our God is a God of the second chance. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would come and instill in us an obedient and a contrite heart. For those that are here, Father, and are recognizing a fear controlling their life, I pray that that fear of whatever it is would be replaced with the healthy fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Father, I pray for those people who feel defeated, despondent, 
I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would come and lift their spirits and help them to rise above and soar on wings like eagles. Father, I pray that you would encourage us all not to allow disappointment to hold us back, but to be the type of people who recognize that you are the God of the second chance. And so, Father, we thank you for that chance this morning. And we pray that we would leave this place encouraged and determined to keep on walking in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Be encouraged this morning. Just before we leave here, I want to give you just a brief update. When you leave here this morning, what I'd encourage you to do as you walk out, there will be some stronger displays that you will see, that you will see in those displays, there is an update on our vision that we have. We have a vision for the next five years that God would bring us to be a church of at least six campuses stretching from Holland to the ends of the earth. We believe that in order to be stronger away, We need to be stronger at home. We believe they both go hand in hand, and we wanna make sure that you are up to date with everything that is happening. About six weeks ago, I wrote the first communication to you, letting you know what we would be doing over the first six weeks. This communication lets you know some of the progress. Some of the progress has been made. For example, we talk about a kid's playland. Uh, Here you can see from the ground floor, just outside the gymnasium, the activity center, some of the constructive designs here that are already being schematically drawn over the last four to six weeks. This is from the gathering grounds. For those of you new, gathering grounds straight out here, looking straight out here as if to the check-in area on your right, you'll see the way this goes. The roof will be taken off, it'll be going up. There's room for about 150 children on this thing. We believe we're doing this at the right time. Just two weeks ago, we had record attendance numbers in, in our children's ministry. We need to create more space. And some of the spaces we need to create, we need them created in order for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and to to be able to do ministry with people who would never darken the doors of a church. This is a really good soft first entry to many. So pick up the information, you'll find out a lot more about what is going on. So there's an info update, and uh, as you leave here, make sure that you uh, pick those up near the exits and the entry points. So that's just a point of information. Do pray for me, tomorrow I travel away, I'm gonna go and speak and minister at our two campuses in Cambodia and in Jakarta over the next couple of weeks. So do pray for that. Pastor Mike will be joining me in a couple of weeks. Pastor Kelly will be going as well. So I'd cover your prayers as we travel there, especially because some of the places we're going to have just had some alerts in there that we need to be aware of. So do uh, pray for me and for us as we travel. With that in mind, let's stand together. I want to finish with a, a prayer of blessing, and I pray that this week you would have an awesome week. Father, we leave this place knowing that we are your children, bought with a price, covered in grace, and we thank you that even when we fail, we receive grace upon grace. Father, as we leave, we thank you that we go in peace, we go with grace. And church, may the God of grace and peace go with you wherever you go. God bless you, have a great week, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.